Dr. Sanj Katyal is a radiologist and a student of positive psychology. He's the author of the Amazon number one bestseller, Positive Philosophy, Ancient and Modern Wisdom to Create a Flourishing Life, where he combines the philosophy of the ancient Stoics and the Bhagavad Gita with the relatively new science-backed positive psychology to help us live our best lives. We actually interviewed him back in February of 2019, and if you haven't already listened to it, be sure to check that out. Now, he's taken that a step further and created a course for physicians, ThriveRx, a practical guide to flourishing for physicians by practicing physicians. ThriveRx is a collaboration with four physician experts to bring you what he calls the course that we wish we had taken in medical school. Sound familiar? It covers the key components of flourishing, personal well-being, heal the healer, professional fulfillment, reclaim the joy in medicine, success, get what you want, and financial independence, work on your own terms. The ThriveRx team created this course for two main reasons. The first goal is to equip physicians with new tools, training, and practical strategies that allow them to reclaim more joy and meaning from medicine. The other goal is to help physicians teach these principles to their patients and families. And all the physicians are still in practice, practicing what they preach. A lot of our discussion focuses on attention and why that's the key to flourishing using our time and attention most efficiently by outsourcing and by minimizing distraction. Dr. Kayel is the founder of Positive Psychology Program for Physicians and the president of Optimal Life Imaging Group, PC. Dr. Kayel also holds certifications in positive psychology and positive psychology coaching from Whole Being Institute. And he's investigating the effectiveness of positive psychology interventions on physician wellness and burnout. And for a limited time, Listeners to this podcast can use the code BRAD, that's me, B-R-A-D, to receive 50% off the course price. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from Physician Financial Services, a business widely recognized in the physician community for disability insurance. Lawrence B. Keller, CFP, has been in the insurance and financial services industry since 1990. Unlike medicine, which has a standardized path that physicians must take to gain the education, training, and experience requirements necessary to obtain board certification, the insurance and financial industry does not. While he might not be a doctor's first phone call regarding their insurance needs, he is often their last. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller or at the link in the description of this show. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. Dr. Sanj Katyal, thanks so much for being back on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Brad. Thanks for having me back. So on the last episode that you were on, we talked about your book, and now we're going to be talking about the course. Now there's going to be some overlap between the two, but just in case someone hasn't listened to that previous episode, although I think they should definitely check it out, for the listeners, let's clarify some terms, right? Because there are some terms that that come up. And I think it's important to distinguish how we define one from the other. So there's happiness, there's flourishing, there's eudaimonia, 
and then there's fulfillment. Uh, so can you help us distinguish, right? Like, as I've heard you say many times, if you ask someone if they want to be happy, of course, they're going to say yes. And then you ask them how they're going to go doing that. They're going to have a difficult time answering. So how do you just define happiness? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. It's a great place to start. You know, happiness is a very overused term. It's kind of like mindfulness, which we'll get into. Um, but I think it, it's really used incorrectly. Uh, it, you know, if you think about happiness, it's really just a chase to feel good. You know, uh, most, most of the time, most of the things we think about are really just trying to feel better. And if we didn't feel bad, we wouldn't need to feel happier or try to chase pleasure. So it's really this kind of transient emotional state that's trying to make us feel better than we normally feel at a baseline level. And the problem is that, as we know from our life experience, you know, when you get a little bit of respite from suffering or from your baseline discontent, it's fleeting, right? Uh, you know, you'll get a little little break, you'll get a little bump in 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 your happiness level, but it'll come back, you know, so you can be happy one minute, um, you know, when something favorable goes your way and then uh, an email comes in or your kids do something that you didn't want them to do. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you're, you're angry or you're unhappy just like that. So it's this kind of fleeting transient emotional state that I think leaves, leaves us all empty eventually. And uh, I just wrote a blog post in Kevin MD called Stop Chasing Happiness. And that's really the essence of it. So I think flourishing or eudaimonia are deeper levels of fulfillment or kind of states of optimal living over a period of time. They're more like, you know, how satisfied am I with my life? Not yesterday when I was on call and got, you know, slammed in the hospital but just overall kind of taking a larger perspective of things. And I think that's a much, much more satisfying and easy to attain goal of well-being if you break it up over that larger perspective. And, you know, and a big part of this satisfaction and, full, and flourishing is really fulfilling our unique potential. And, and you know, we can kind of get into that and, and what that means, but that's, uh, to me, that that's a big part of of why many of us feel unfulfilled with our lives or have a lack of flourishing. So, one of the things that you've made the comparison of is is eudaimonia versus and and I don't know the proper conjugation of this word, but you you compare the eudaimonia, which is that that flourishing, mm-hmm. right, to hedonism, and I don't know the right kind hedo hedomonia hedonomonia. Yeah, um, yeah, or eudonism and hedonism. So, um, you know, we have a tendency to chase hedonism, right, and yeah. not eudaimonia. Why? Why is that? And how do we change that? Well, yeah, hedonism uh, or chasing pleasure, I think, is 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 what we all chase. I mean, that's just the way our mind is wired. And you know, if you think about from an evolutionary standpoint, you know. At, the human organism evolved, the limbic system grew uh, in the wild to basically search for opportunities and threats, basically to protect protect ourselves. And as we evolved as a society, 
uh, we grew our identity, our ego, not in the sense of bravado, but our, you know, our kind of manufactured identity to be able to handle these kind of hostile situations or societal interactions. But the goal is still the same, survival of the human organism. So we're always searching for opportunity and threats. And, you know, if you think about how a dog behaves, right, it's it's scouring the floor for food and it's barking at strangers. That, that in, in a nutshell, at our core evolution is, is how our minds work. And so we're constantly chasing opportunities, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Uh, that's basically hedonism in, in, in a nutshell. And a lot of people just get, get trapped in that, in that cycle because we never are satisfied. That's hedonic adaptation. We talked about that last time. We take for granted all the good things in our life. And that's, that's the way our minds work because if the mind can't be satisfied, if it was satiated, it, it would threaten its own survival. So we have built-in wiring, like, you know, adapting to our new partner salary or our new marriage or our new car so that we keep driving for the next thing. We keep searching. We keep on the lookout. Uh, it's a protective mechanism. Uh, so that's that's the difference between hedonism and eudaimonia, which is basically more of a tranquility or a peaceful existence, contentment. So I, I love the concept of hedonic adaptation, actually, to the point where my wife rolls her eyes every time I, I bring it up. Um, and, uh, and you know, we're total consumers, especially during the pandemic. Uh, rarely a day that goes by that there's not a new box on our doorstep of more stuff. So so I'm definitely definitely a culprit of it. But so just to review, hedonic adaptation is, is just the fact that we get used to anything, right? We can get used to poor circumstances, right? Or we can get used to good circumstances. So you buy a new car and eventually that new car loses its newness and it stops making you happier. You know, whereas if you lose your job, you're going to be pretty unhappy for a while, uh, but eventually your baseline happiness, you'll, you'll find another job and your baseline happiness comes through. Like, unless there's extenuating circumstances, you basically, you'll return to baseline. So I think as physicians, right, because it's a physician audience, we're constantly chasing more stuff. We're constantly chasing the next title. We're constantly chasing the next, you know, big house or big car to keep up with the the neighbors. And one thing that I've heard you talk about is impact impact bias and affective forecasting right? Our inability to predict what's going to make us happy and our inability to predict what's going to make us unhappy, right? We avoid, because we're, our brains, as you, right, our brains are these, these threat identification machines. So yeah. we're constantly on the lookout for threats. And if we think there's a threat, we do whatever we can to avoid it because we think the outcome is going to be worse than it really is. So one, can you talk about why we're so bad at predicting how happy or how, um, how sad, why do we suck at this, right? Why, why is it that we're so bad at this? And what can we do to change that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think you hit on some really key points there. And I think they're especially problematic for physicians because we live in a world of delayed gratification, you know, right? So we've deferred happiness to another level and then the next stage in our academic career. And the problem is we always feel un unfulfilled when we get to that stage and even, even the ultimate stage, right. Where you're like, you know, you're, you're about to, you have a, you know, money in the bank, you're about to retire. I know many people that I've talked to over the years that retire and think it's going to be this awesome thing. And they find themselves 
bored, restless, unhappy. And, uh, you know, it's ironic. They think back to their residency days and they feel more alive and more energetic and stuff. So, yeah, it's a big problem. Uh, you know, affective forecasting is a study. It's, it's a science in itself. And it's the study of what will make us happy or what we think will make us happy. And, you know, surprisingly, what the research from positive psychology has shown is that we're really bad at predicting what will make us happy to make things that we think are going to make us really happy. And we overestimate the things that we think are going to make us really sad. College professors overestimated how happy or unhappy they were after being granted or denied tenure five years later. So all this stuff has been in various populations. But what the research really shows is that in general, things aren't as good or as bad as we think they're going to be. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind, especially during the pandemic. You know, I was trying to tell one of my kids who was kind of worried about all this stuff and the media was feeding into the fear. And in general, that's what life bears out is things aren't as good or as bad as as we think they're going to be. But this is an evolutionary. And the reason that they're not is because we eventually adapt to them. It's hedonic adaptation again, right? So whatever happens in the future, something positive, you're going to adapt to it. So it's not going to be as good as you built it up in your mind. And similarly, if something negative happens, it's not going to be as bad as you think it was going to be because you would adapt to that as well. So hedonic adaptation is really the cornerstone of why we overestimate or underestimate our future emotional reactions. But it's an evolutionary motivator. Right. Because, uh, again, it's our minds, you know, it, it makes us work extra hard to seek some pleasure or avoid some pain. And it's a survival mechanism. Right. Because if we really are extra motivated, we're not going to fall prey to complacency or that something that would you know, threaten our own survival. So then if becoming professor is never as good as it seems like it's going to be, let's say everyone realize that, right? And then people would stop chasing that and we'd become complacent, right? We wouldn't be as ambitious. We wouldn't be doing as much research, writing as many papers or doing as much public speaking, right? Like how do we still hit the sweet spot between being satisfied where we are right now, right? Mm -hmm. Without risking becoming complacent versus being dissatisfied enough to be motivated to continue pursuing the next step, right? It seems to me you're like, you're on a knife's edge because if you're too satisfied, you're going to be, which is kind of the goal here, right? Like we want to be satisfied (laughs) with our lives, but if we're so satisfied, then we might get complacent, right? How how do we, how do we hit that sweet spot? Yeah. That's kind of like the people that worry if you meditate and you're more peaceful or calm, will you, will it kind of, will you lose your edge, right? Uh, Your competitive edge, what the research shows, it's actually the reverse. So the more the more content you are and the more fulfilled you are internally, the, the more successful you are externally within the kind of societal world. Uh, I think that the key is to understand why you're doing what you're doing. So, you know, we have we have a lot, a lot of us have, and you know, I include myself in all of this stuff. So I'm not sitting here claiming to be, you know, this somebody that has it all figured out. A lot of the stuff that I talk about in my research is basically just figured out for myself in my own life. But, you know, it, it, the, the, the 
root cause of a lot of problems and a lot of feelings of restlessness is really unfulfilled potential. Basically, there's a gap between where we're where we're living or what we're doing and what we really could be doing. And, and internally, we know this. And that gap is, is really the cause for, you know, internal conflict. And it's the really the cause that motivates us to kind of seek anything to feel differently, basically. So if you focus on fulfilling your potential, meaning doing high impact, meaningful work, whatever that may be in whatever domain, mastering your craft, for the sake of of doing that, whether it's doing re, you know high quality research, whether it's teaching at an academic institution to the best of your ability, whether it's you know being a, a great uh, private practice physician, well, whatever it is, if you do that for the sake of of doing that and trying to close the gap of of your unfulfilled potential, all the other stuff goes away. But if you do that, if you're trying to become professor because you think it's going to fill a void that's missing and you're chasing something to fill some feeling of emptiness, it'll never work. You'll just keep feeling empty. So it it, it all depends on the, where the motivation to do these things comes from. So the motivation needs to come from within. It needs to be its own reward. The activity needs to be its own reward. If you're doing it, if you're like keeping score, well, I wrote more papers than this person and therefore I should be professor and I should be chair. They shouldn't be chair. You know, like you're keeping score. You're trying to fill that void. Uh, Whereas if you're you're doing it for its own sake, not for an outcome, then you're, you're going to be satisfied because you're, you're doing it for the fulfillment, for the enjoyment of it. And, and, And that's exactly right. And the rewards will actually ironically come in greater amounts. When, when you do it, the the you know for for the intrinsic mastery of of whatever you're trying to work on, I read somewhere a really interesting thing: that which you chase will run from you. You know, and that's that's actually very very true if you think back to to life. And and so you know, I try to keep that in mind and and just work you know internally on what will satisfy me for the sake of the work itself. It's definitely true with my children too. As soon as you start chasing them, take off. So, okay. So, so we should be choosing parts of our jobs that we want to participate in, right? Committees and extracurriculars and right. All these things kind of like you're doing, right? You're doing this course for the love of it, not because you're hoping that you're going to be like Apple Podcasts number one course in you know 2021. You're doing it because you've. I feel like it's it's like when you're in love, right? You just want to tell everyone about it. Like you find this great idea and it's your passion, and you just want to tell everyone about it. And it's not like you're seeking accolades or you know even revenue from it. You're just you're doing it because you're you're like preaching the gospel. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I taught a, a free program to many, many physicians for lots of years because the work itself was its own, really its own reward. Now, this course is more comprehensive than that program. And, you know, we can get into that, but the, the you know, it's priced just to cover costs of CME, really. I mean, that's all it is. It's it's the, the, the Thrive RX course is, is, you know, there's basically three reasons I, I, I created it. And, uh, you know, one is there's, I got tired of seeing all the, 
all the fragmented advice in the well-being space out there, all the resilience modules and yoga classes and wellness days and, and just stuff that, you know, people are checking the boxes to, for, you know, physician well-being or burnout prevention, but none of it works. None of it's lasting. And, you know, by getting to the root cause of, of, of why we do what we do and, and some of the things that we've already talked about, you know, you can actually, you can actually create lasting change that ends up really being meaningful. And that's what I've developed over the last several years. And then, you know, I just wanted to scale it really to get to the physician's kids. Uh, my wife's a counselor at a local university and, you know, mental health in the youth was really bad before COVID and it's a storm right now. And so if we can scale these principles and make the parents or the physician parents calmer, happier, and understand why they're doing it, you know, chasing less, being fulfilled more, they can impart some of these things to their kids. So it's, you know, ultimately that's, that's my real goal is it's a backdoor to the kids with Thrive RX. So yeah, for me, reading, math, geography, social studies, all, all that stuff, the schools are going to teach them. Yeah. For me, my my main goal with my kids is is going to be teaching them things like this, teaching them things that that the school should be teaching, right? But you'd have to turn the curriculum upside down in order to, order to bring stuff like this in. But uh, uh, yeah, the, the goal is to teach the kids this, this type of material. Um, and and they'll lead to a more flourishing life for them. Speaking of the kids, right? So you say that if we adapt, we adapt to everything, right? We adapt to seeing patients, right? I see, I see like 25, we're we're not back up to 30 patients a day, uh, but you know, 20 to 25 patients a day. And, you know, I, I adapt to, I still enjoy it, right? Every patient experience is new, but, but still hedonic adaptation, we get used to it. And your answer to this is attention, right? Is focus. It's fo- how we focus our attention. And the reason I bring up the kids is because something that I'm constantly trying to do is be present with them. Present in the moment, not distracted by work or my phone. And it's hard. It's really hard. But your argument is this is the answer to not adapting to all these stimuli, it's being present, being in, being in the moment. So talk to us some, about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I never tell anybody to be present or be more present because, you know, if you're, if you, if you're trying to force yourself to be present, you're probably not going to be present. Um, so it's really about creating an environment. If you chase it, it's going to run away, right? That's exactly right. Same idea. Uh, it's, it's another chase. Uh, you yeah. know, mindfulness is a chase, unfortunately. You know, uh, there's no question that meditation has some significant cognitive benefits, but mindfulness, all this stuff, it's just another chase. So it's really about creating environments to that, that enable you to pay attention. Uh, and, and, you know, our phones are, are really big problems. We talked about it in the last time. It's only gotten worse <laughs> since our last podcast episode. Yeah, now I'm on more social media apps. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So it's really, and we talk about this in ThriveRx because positive psychology tells you what to pay attention to. You know, we've talked about the evolutionary traps of the mind. We've got a framework built based in science called Revamp, which we can get into, but basically these are all the elements of flourishing. So that tells you what the priorities are. 
And but that's knowledge, right? We have a lot of knowledge as physicians. Wisdom is actually know is doing what we know we're supposed to be doing, right? So we know we're supposed to be, you know, looking at our kids in the eye when they're talking to us, not on our phones. Like we all know that, but you know, most of us don't do that all the time. And so integrating what we know we're supposed to do into daily habits is really key. And I think that's a big missing piece in the well-being space. So we go into how does attention actually work? You know, what 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 really works um, with attention? What's important? What are extraneous distractions? What does cognitive load mean? And how can you reduce it to to pay more attention, uh, whether it's a patient in front of you, whether it's a complicated cancer follow-up CT, or whether it's your child asking you a question. You know, we want to maximize signal and we want to reduce noise. And so there are, there are very, very specific ways to do that. You know, when it comes to being more present with your kids, you know, uh, I've, I've got four kids and, you know, play a lot of baseball, played a lot of catch over the years. And it gets really old really quick, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, they all play tournament baseball and my daughter plays softball now. So if I can, you know, leave my phone in the house, first of all, just me with the ball and the glove. And so that's kind of an environment, environmental constraint, you know, and you can use these constraints no matter what you're doing. And then the other thing is to introduce intentional novelty. And we call these anchoring questions. So, you know, one of the questions that I that I always talk about when I'm thinking about playing with my kids is, you know, how can I ask them different questions to maybe have a deeper conversation while we're catching? You know, I'll think about that. How can I turn it into a game that's different than we've played before? So we're both kind of pulled into the moment. So intentionally introducing novelty into our lives is really key. And we and, you know, we do this when I'm reading 150 cases a day. You know, I, one of the anchoring questions I ha- ask myself and, and a lot of the radiologists I work with is, you know, what great pickup am I going to am I going to make today? You know, which case is it going to be that I'm going to pick up a subtle pancreatic cancer that's actually resectable or a renal cell that's incidentally picked up? You know, and so this intentional infusion of novelty into our day to day existence, you know, seeing your 30th patient in a 10 minute time slot, you know, what? You know, could you treat that person like your best friend sitting there? So what I try to do personally is related to the podcast. Whatever person that I had on recently is going to leave me with some advice. And so what I try to do during that week, because I have an episode every week, is I try to infuse whatever lesson they've taught me to my visits for that week. I mean, you know, 30 patients in a day. but but that helps me to integrate it into my practice and and and, and alters my practice style. So I think, you know, for, for I love this because one thing that we do at my house is we always go to the swing set and we always go on the swings. And now I have three kids and three swings. And now the baby is old enough to be clipped into a swing. And so we stand out there and they just, I mean, sometimes they run around like madmen, right? But sometimes they're just, they're just, I'm just want to be pushed over and over and over and over. And it gets mind numbing. It gets mind numbing. And so I need to, yeah, I need to think, what can I do differently today that's going to make this time on the swings different for them and for me, right? What should I do? Maybe I should like push them horizontally and 
slam them into each other and play bumper swings. I don't know. But yeah, but, but I love that. So what can I do differently that it's going to make it more memorable? And therefore, I haven't adapted to it, right? That's There's exactly novelty right. and our brains are attracted to novelty. So it's going to make it more memorable. It's going to make it more fun. So when you're in those monotonous circumstances, what can you do to make it a little, a little different, a little more memorable? I love that. I love it. Yeah, variety is key. And, uh, you know, even simple as simple as what am I going to know? What's different? What different thing am I going to notice out here today? You know, if I'm going for a walk, sometimes I'll just ask myself that. It just, it just you know, re, it reframes things for your brain. And uh, it just it combats the, the bore. boredom is basically hedonic adaptation. You know, when we're bored, we're, we're, we're we basically adapted to whatever our circumstance is. So, you know, as pervasive as I thought hedonic adaptation was three years ago when we first talked, it's, it's every, it's, 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 it's everywhere. So keep talking about it to your wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like her to remain my wife. So uh, I don't know. So you also talk about working memory, right? Like, and I think this applies to when we're, you know, in the same, in the same circumstance and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like RAM, right? In a computer, it's, it's RAM. Like, so if you have a number of I guess we'll use the phone instead of the computer, but if you have a, a lot of apps open at the same time, it's going to slow things down. You're, if you, whereas if you close all the apps and just have one open, you're going to have all of the, the RAM working on that one app. It's going to be a lot more smooth. It's going to work a lot faster. Yeah, so, that's, that, that's a great analogy. So how do, we, how do we close our mental apps, right? Like I'm, if I'm with a patient, how can I make sure that I'm, laser focused on the patient and not distracted by whoever I just gave bad news to last or the fact that I'm running behind or that like, what are some, what are some things that I can do to close the mental apps to make sure that all of my working memory is on that patient or on my kid or my spouse or whatever it is I'm doing at the time? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's, that's the heart of the issue. You know, working memory is basically a high performance engine. And it's been correlated more than IQ for academic success in kids. So that's how important it is. And basically, our working memory used to be called short-term memory. And, you know, so when something's stimuli or information is coming at us, we can, we're pretty unlimited in storing and retrieving it from long-term memory back into our working memory. But, But the working memory is actually very fixed when it's processing new information and it's highly sensitive to the cognitive load of the information, meaning how much noise, how much complexity is coming at us. So the, the thing about multiple apps being open is exactly right. You know, you can't multitask because it, it, it will drain your working memory and, and work. And when you have a draining or a low working memory for the level of stimuli that's coming in, what that causes is stress, fatigue, and error none of which are good for physicians. You know, uh, and, and this is the case, uh, cognitive load is very high when you're talking to a patient and you're trying to do data entry in an EMR at the same time. That's split attention effect, and it's basically increases cognitive load, decreases working memory performance, lowers accuracy, increases stress and fatigue. Same thing with reading radiology. You know, we've got voice recognition screen on one side. We've got the images here going back and forth. Very, very draining on the working memory and very fatiguing uh, and and fraught with error. So one of the things that that we talk about and I've, I've worked over the last several years is trying to keep people, physicians, doing things that only they can do. 
and then either offloading, eliminating, delegating everything else in the whatever physician zone specialty you happen to be in. So if you're seeing patients, and I work with the tons of ER docs, um, having a scribe in the room to basically do all the stuff that they don't want to be dealt having to deal with, while they can actually focus in on their physician zone, which is the meaningful interaction where they're trying to formulate a diet, you know, a treatment and diagnostic plan for the patient. Radiologists, same thing. We've dissected the reading process, offloaded half of it to people that aren't radiologists. And uh, our interpretive zone is basically our physician zone. And you can kind of stay in that from case to case to case with very low fatigue and very high accuracy rates. Um, and, and then, you know, by having this kind of efficient workflow, we actually preserve our our stress and our fatigue levels so that we're really able to focus on on the other big piece of professional fulfillment is, you know, one piece is high impact work or whatever we do in our physician zone. And the other piece is meaningful interactions, whether it's with our fit patients, whether it's with our referring colleagues, uh, our technologists. And so, you know, optimizing working memory, our workflow so that we can we can be better suited and less stress for those meaningful interactions, I think, can really reconnect us to why we went into medicine in the first place. Yeah, Phil Boucher, he's, uh, I think his podcast is called High Yield Physician. I'm going to take credit because I, I helped him with the name of that one. He was on the show a while ago talking about the importance of having a scribe for, for time efficiency and I think ultimately for financial efficiency, right? Because then oh, yeah. we can spend more time seeing patients, the patients are going to have a better experience, which will then, they're going to, that's infectious, right? They're going to tell their friends, they're going to have, a, they're going to fill up your schedule. And yes, there's some overhead at the beginning in hiring them and training them, but ultimately it pays dividends in that we, what you're saying is we enjoy our job more. And what he said is we can do it more efficiently. We go home earlier, having seen more patients. And so revenue wise, it's, it's not even a zero sum game. It makes, you end up with more revenue. Of course, that's not what we're chasing here, right? We're not we're not chasing revenue, yeah. but it just makes sense on a on a number of levels. Yeah, you know, you know, but I mean, you know, you can't ignore the financial piece. I mean, there's a huge financial ROI for that. How much you tap into that depends on a lot of other circumstances, but it, it for sure pays for itself. But I think the yield on the uh, job satisfaction side and coming home energized as opposed to just dragging is far more important. I think. This needs to be something that we consider far into the future as well, because right now the, the the job market is pretty unstable. Like there's a lot of dissatisfaction in people's jobs, and, and particularly for you know staffing positions. And so I think it's important for people to keep in mind if you have trouble finding a scribe right now, it doesn't mean that you're going to have trouble finding one indefinitely. I think there's going to be a lot of shuffling of jobs coming up currently is happening, and is going to be coming into the future. And so if you can't find a scribe right now, you know doesn't doesn't mean you won't be able to find one um, eventually. So it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah. So you had mentioned revamp, right? Is that something from positive psychology or that's a Dr. Katyel, you know, acronym? That's one, that's one that, of yours. That, that's actually, so revamp is based on Marty Seligman's PERMA model of flourishing. PERMA is positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. REVAMP is actually an acronym by my co-founder of, of ThriveRx, uh, Jordan Feingold, who did this, did REVAMP 
as her capstone project, as her master's of positive psychology at Penn. So she deserves all the credit for revamp, but it's basically a lot of the same elements. So relationships we know are, and these are key pieces of flourishing across the domain of the entire physician life, really. So relationships, the most important predictor of well-being. We know that from longitudinal Harvard studies for 75 years. Uh, very, very important. Engagement, that's kind of what we're talking about here. I've introduced physician's own attention and uh, optimizing working memory into the engagement, but there's also talking about flow states and, and you know, uh, ultimately uh, mindfulness or being present. And then uh, vitality is mind-body, exercise, nutrition, sleep, all the stuff that we know as physicians we need to do. Achievement is professional success, leadership, negotiation skills. We, we have an entire module on that in ThriveRx, uh, as well as financial independence under achievement. Because if you're worried about your paycheck, you can't really worry, be worried too much about flourishing or your well-being. And if you're, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're going to be uh, prone to basically be stuck in a negative, toxic work environment. So financial independence is really a key piece of what I've learned and what I wish I had learned 20 years ago. And so that's why we incorporated that into the course, because I think that it's just a key aspect of flourishing. you got to take money off the table to focus on these deeper, more meaningful pursuits. That's, that's kind of where we are. So that was, that was accomplishment, which is financial. And then meaning, you know, is high impact work and meaningful interactions on a day-to-day basis. And then positive emotions is just infuse our days with laughter, with play, with novelty. We talked about that. When my kids were little, we were just talking about this at dinner the other day. We would play these, these weird games. Like we'd have Olympic night, you know, I'd pull out some old trophies and we'd just have like a bunch of like little games that we would play. And they still remember that. And we didn't do it that often, maybe like, you know, once a month, <laughs> but they, they still remember that stuff. So, you know, positive emotions, infusing laughter, play, novelty, optimism into our uh, day-to-day existence, I think is really key. So that's, that's the last element of revamp. I didn't put this in the questions that I sent you beforehand. But since we've mentioned our our own children, of everything in the course, of everything, what's, if you could make sure that one lesson from it goes to all of your children, which lesson would it be? It it sounds like the question we're going to end on, and we're not. We're not not wrapping up. (laughs) There is one more thing that I want to get to, but what's that one lesson? Probably that our minds are wired to chase pleasure and to understand that and to focus inward on fulfilling whatever unique potential that they feel inside. Connect them to what do they love to do as children? What do they, what do, they do that doesn't feel like work? You know, uh, connect to that level before the indoctrination of society, of parents, of friends, all of that stuff. So really understand our mind's biological wiring, hedonic adaptation, and then to shift and focus inwardly on on fulfilling or focusing on inward unique potential is probably the the biggest lesson because I think that's the cause of probably a lot of discontent among many, many people, at least the ones I've worked with, certainly in my own life, which is what I can (laughs) speak to. Yeah, I think fulfillment, it makes me think of some parents that I knew growing up right? Some would focus on happiness for their kids. So they'd buy them whatever they want. They'd get them. Other parents, super driven, 
right? They, there was nothing more important to them than their kid's success. So one parent wanted to make the kid happy all the time. The other wanted to make sure that their kid was successful, whatever that meant at that time. But I think the what we really need to be focusing on is fulfillment, like what in your life uh, fulfills you. And that's you know that's certainly going to be a moving target. Uh, but um, what fulfills you? Uh, you know, understanding why things happen the way they do, like why my mind thinks certain ways, why I act certain ways, understanding uh, that the, the kind of mental traps, ultimately to live better, understanding and exploring how to live uh, more fulfilled life, uh, really closing the gap between where I, where I'm living and, you know, what I could be doing in my, my own kind of potential. And I think that's for me, writing, teaching, and, uh, just exploring these kind of truths are, are really, uh, fulfilling to me, you know, you're a philosopher in a radiologist's body. <laughs> I really like philosophy. It's, it's strange. I was a chemical engineer undergrad and I took like several philosophy classes. And I, if I had to do it all over again, knowing I was going to go to med school, I would definitely have majored in philosophy. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if philosophy, but I don't know. I probably would have gone, uh, I probably would have gone engineering actually. <laughs> um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in the U S we do this all particularly poorly. Like our focus is always on stuff, right? It's yeah. never on fulfillment. And I think a, a prime example, and I apologize if I brought this up in the previous interview, but I think the prime example to this is the Super Bowl, right? You watch the Super Bowl and you watch what's being advertised on the Super Bowl. It's either garbage food or more mm-hmm. stuff that's not going to make you any happier, right? Like that's it. The entire billions in advertising revenue is spent on those two things right? Are there countries that do this better than us? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you've heard of the Blue Zones, that book by, uh, I forget the the author, but basically he studied, there's like five Blue Zones throughout the world. And these are zones where people are, you know, they live the longest, they live healthiest, and they are self-reported happiest. Um, And these Blue Zones have several things in common once they've studied these areas. One is, you know, they have a strong sense of community. Relationships are very important to them. They have intergenerational or multi-generational things. Nutrition, you know, and that whole mind-body connection, vitality, they walk a lot. They have plant-based Mediterranean diets. And, you know, they have a very minimalistic lifestyle. They're not particularly wealthy. They don't have, you know, the latest, you know, Apple Watch and iPhone 10 or 12 or whatever but they are very healthy and they are very happy and very content, fulfilled basically. And so these are, those are common attributes. But if you look at those, those are kind of the elements that positive psychology is talking about to lead a, a, a good life, you know, a life of flourishing. The gratitude journal is, is something you talk a lot about. And your sweet spot has been, what, three days a week, right? Yeah. You, write, you write in your gratitude journal three days a week. And, and the concept behind that is that it gets you to, rather than your brain being a threat assessment machine or a, a threat detection machine, your brain is now wired to look for those things that you're grateful for. So throughout the day, you're constantly looking for and identifying and recognizing and committing to memory the things that you're 
you're grateful for. I tried doing this. I tried doing this. I tried doing it with my wife, where I like at the end of the day, we would say one thing that we're grateful for. And it, yeah. it just became a slog, right? It just became, we're like, oh, what are you going to Oh, the kids. You know, like, oh, a good day with the kids. Oh, you know what? They slept through the night. Or they, you know, like we wouldn't, we didn't get to the point where we were noticing things during the day. It became work at night to think about something during the day to tell your spouse that you were happy about, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you have any advice for, for, yeah, I mean, developing some, some, that into some <laughs> enjoyable experience? Yeah, I mean, you know, some people adapt. Basically, you've adapted to it. That's that's basically what happens, right? I mean, you, you and some people adapt very quickly to gratitude journaling, and so it doesn't work for everybody. What I would say, which we talked about last time, is flip it on its head and and once every two weeks do negative visualization instead. Because you're, you know, again, our brains are wired very strongly to threats. And so if you if you think about, you know, what happens, you know, and I just did this the other day, you know, my, you know, my daughter's doing these, you know, winter training softball practices. And I was beat after a couple of days and I had to take her to, you know, 45 minute drive, you know, and I, and she's a sophomore in high school. And I, and I, you know, told, I mentally time traveled forward to when she's in college, like my oldest son is in college now. And imagine how much I'd crave a car ride with her. Now that doesn't work if you do it every day or three days a week or whatever. And you've got to vary it again. It's like that novelty infusion that we're talking about, but I would forget about gratitude journaling and just do negative visualization once every couple of weeks. And the other thing I do sometimes if I'm, you know, if I feel particularly overwhelmed or down is I've just listed as many things that I could that I'm happy that that are in my life from the biggest things to the smallest things. Now, again, that's not something you want to do three times a week or whatever, but, you know, once every few months, it, it does kind of re re reframe things uh, for you and move you away from that you know, pleasure, pain, threats, opportunities to pay attention to what you have while you still have it, which is really what we all want to be doing. So something that I'd like to end on, one of the previous interviews was with BJ Fogg, who is a behavioral scientist. And he came up with this model for developing habits. This book was Mm -hmm. called Tiny Habits. And the idea is that in your day, there's going to be a prompt, something that tells you it's time to do X. Mm-hmm. And you're not always going to be motivated to do X. So it needs to be relatively easy to do. So even when your motivation wanes, it's so easy to do that you're motiv- you're still motivated enough to do it. Do you have anything that you would recommend that we do? You know, it might be, it might just be that. It might be the negative visualization, but you know, like attach it to a a prompt, right? Like the most common one to think of is when your toothbrush clicks back in the holder like that. It's the more specific a prompt, uh, the better. Or opening the door when you get home from work, right? Some some prompt that tells you it's time to do X. What can we do either to cultivate more attention, cultivate more gratitude, flourish more, right? Give us some homework. Give us one tiny habit to cultivate. Yeah, I mean, what he's talking about is really powerful. You know, you want to reduce friction and you want to piggyback it on something that you already do every day when you're trying to create a new habit, a good positive habit. And then you just reverse those things if you want to eliminate a bad habit. 
So, you know, one of the things that I do, if you want to create a small sense of peace in the morning or a small sense of a writing practice is, you know, when I first put my coffee on and, you know, I get ready and stuff, my very first uh, sip of coffee, I'll have while I, you know, do some writing. And that's just a prompt that I'm going to be drinking coffee and I'm going to be writing uh, a few things. So it all depends on what's important to you and what you're trying to cultivate. You know, the red light and negative visualization I do all the time. It's almost like second nature now. So if I'm just thinking, I'll just start, I'll just start thinking. And that happens over periods of time. You know, you're stopping at a red light, you're gonna, you can easily piggyback that to something, whether it's gratitude or, or the flip side of that. You know, I, I do a lot of stuff with walking and- uh, Or observation, and, observation. You got a red light, look around. Yeah. Notice something different. Notice something about your setting that maybe you haven't noticed before. Sorry, just bringing, you know, a little call back to something you said earlier. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can, you can use all these opportunities to infuse novelty intentionally. And, and when you infuse novelty, you automatically create attention. And the, the other thing I would say- with habits is, you know, you really want to impose constraints on yourself to create habits. So you want to create your environment. You want to reduce friction in your environment that's going to promote the right habit. So if you don't want to be checking your phone between every CT scan you read, then create your habit so your phone's not right there, right? That's another, that's that's the flip side of BJ Fogg's tiny habits, but it's, but it's, it's increasing friction to remove a bad habit. Right. So if you have to go into your backpack or across the office to get it, you're probably just going to, you know, keep reading cases, be, you know, in your physician's zone without being distracted, without increasing cognitive load, all the noise. So, you know, constraints is the flip side of habit formation, and it can help really help with maintaining good habits and removing bad ones. So, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in constraint, particularly for kids. It's not going to make you popular. <laughs> Trust me. but you know, they need limits on their phones. They need limits on their social media. They need, they need rules where, where they should be studying without their phones, all that stuff that is going to be coming out and it's going to be, you know, second nature. Those are all constraints. And uh, I think we all, we all could use those. Hard to self-inflict them. It is. So tell us about the course. Where do we find it? How do we get there? Tell us about it. Yeah, the, the course is uh, it encompasses all aspects of kind of physician well-being. So we talk about personal well-being with positive psychology and revamp. We talk about professional fulfillment, functioning at the top of our licensure to really optimize meaningful interactions and high-impact work and how to actually do that in practice. We've got, you know, many specialties that we we go into. We talk about principles of success, leadership, negotiation skills, so that you can kind of craft your ideal career, one that brings you closer to your idea of, uh, of personal fulfillment. And then we have a financial module. It's mini finance MBA. It basically tells us that the key principles of converting active income to passive income so that we're not so reliant on paychecks from our employers. And then the fifth module is just putting it all together into a concise daily habits action plan. And it's, it's been going really well. It's, we've, we offer seven and a, it's accredited for seven and a half hours of CME and it's priced 500 bucks, 497, just really covers the CME cost uh, of the course. So the goal is really, you know, we've got four physician experts all of us are continuing to practice medicine. We have no plans to leave medicine. 
This is not a profitable side gig for us. It's just a, it's a means to scale the principles and really get them into the families of physicians. Uh, and we're in the, in doing so, we're creating a good physician community around it, uh, supporting one another. It's amazing when you talk to physicians, how, what a sense of relief they feel uh, when they're like, wow, I thought this was just me. I didn't realize that other people felt this way. And you know, that alone, without having to go into anything else, just that sense of, well, it's not just me. That's, that's, that's a huge, uh, uh, huge benefit. Uh, so the, the, the sense of community around all of this is, uh, is great. So yeah, they, can, they can find the course at positive-medicine.com. Uh, and uh, it'll take you to the course. Uh, and, you know, they can email me if they have any questions. We offer some group discounts uh, early on. So, And if it's for CME, that means it's, you could take it as a write-off, right? If it's CME. Yeah, yeah. Use there your you CME allowance. Yeah, use your CME allowance. Uh, and it, uh, it, it satisfies. It actually satisfies risk, patient safety and risk too. So it's kind of strange. Fantastic. Even better. And I took the course. So, and I, I can tell you firsthand, I, you know, I strongly, I strongly recommend it. And also check out to, while we have Jan, tell them about the book as well. Uh, yeah. The book was a uh, positive philosophy, uh, ancient and modern wisdom to create a flourishing life. It basically combined the goals of philosophy, which is to live a, a good life with the practical roadmap of positive psychology, which I think is somewhat cluttered by platitudes and, and the self-help movement. Uh, but I think it's got a lot of science behind what it's studying. Uh, and if you can kind of marry that with the original goals of, of the ancient philosophers um, of how to live better, which is really what we all want to do. So, uh, you know, it talks a lot about hedonic adaptation. It goes into the, some of the science behind it and, and uh, meditation and mindfulness and some of the other things we didn't we didn't touch on, but we did touch on last time in our podcast interview. And I love I love the book. I love it. Strains out uh, that in the course, right? It it really strains out all the baloney and all the woo woo stuff that comes with these movements, and it gets down to science, practical advice, things that you can do, you know, active things that you can do to 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 make your life better, and then ultimately pass on to your children's. Uh, Sands, thanks so much for being on the podcast again. I love the work that you're doing and I'm excited to see what, what comes next. Thanks so much, Brad. It's been a pleasure and I uh, really appreciate you having me on. Another great show with Sanj. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to Larry Keller of Physician Financial Services for your disability insurance needs. He's been around for a while in many physician communities, helping them with the coverage they need. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.